I'm Aaron Meyer, this week's producer, and this is the 19.9 Podcast. If you know the source of those three words, then you know our guest here on the 19.9 podcast. It's Buddy from the Hickory Huskers. Buddy, 41, is killing us. He's just killing us, all right? Stick with him. I mean, the thing of chewing gum. By the end of the game, I want to know what flavor he is. He's dancing. Brad Long joins us here on the 19.9 podcast to talk about getting cast in the iconic film, making the movie alongside fellow Indiana-bred non-actors, and reflecting on Hoosiers' continued fame 35 years after the film's release. Now, on to the show. Thanks for joining us here on the 19.9 podcast. Thank you, Danny. I'm glad to be here. Uh, cool. Well, I've you know seen Hoosiers first time 1986 and uh, as a little guy, and I have seen it probably 100 times since. So I know the film well, and you know we're a brand, so I'm excited to dig into talking about that. Um, and that film, and for a lot of people, holds a real special place for them. So but before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit just about your own basketball story. You know, we're a brand here at 19.9 that celebrates basketball history and and we're always a bit curious about different ways people get pulled into the game. So tell us a little bit about your basketball origin story and how you kind of came to came to be involved in basketball. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't have any real uh, interesting uh, uh, you know story where I had no interest in basketball or any background on. I kind of been brought up in a basketball family. My dad played at Indiana University, uh, and so I had two brothers, and um, you know we went at it all the years we were growing up, and so. Grew up with basketball, ended up playing at a high school in central Indiana. Uh, coach was kind of recruiting in the Indiana, Indiana area, and so ended up going to a little school in Kansas called Southwestern College. Uh, played there and then uh, came back and, you know, was getting ready to start my career uh, with my job. And the next thing you know, they there was an article in the paper about the Hoosiers thing. And so that led me into the Hoosiers, uh, uh, you know, story. Let's stick with uh, your old man playing for IU. So you grew up, I imagine, a huge IU fan, wanted to play for the Hoosiers, I imagine, like a lot of kids in Indiana. Yeah, like most kids growing up, I mean, it's, you know, pretty much it's IU, Purdue. You know, it's usually between those two. Then you throw Butler in there and Notre Dame. You got some great schools in Indiana. But, yes, I was an IU fan because of my dad, you know, and uh, and still am. You know, we still he's still pretty involved down there with uh, the team. They're very good to alumni and former players, so we get to go to a lot of games. And so, yeah, I grew up watching the Hoosiers, and, uh, you know, I just wasn't quick enough, really, to play Division One. I. I could shoot and dribble and pass and just didn't get my dad's quickness. And so I uh, uh, had fewer options and uh, just really enjoyed my experience down in Kansas, especially, especially getting to play for a coach that uh, kind of grew up as a night disciple. So it was kind of like the best of both worlds got to, you know, play, go somewhere where I could play and enjoy uh, the time that I was there. Now, when you're with your dad, 
uh, and other people find that he played for IU and you were in Hoosiers, who are people more impressed by? Yeah, that's a great question. It depends on it, it depends on the age range. Um, you know, the the older group um, remembers him playing, of course, and wants to ask a bunch of stories about you know the old Hoosier teams. He and Walt Bellamy and that bunch, and then the younger group, of course, will gravitate, I suppose, towards me and want to know, you know, some Hoosier stuff. Although, Danny, I will tell you, the older I get, I'll be having lunch somewhere. And I always tell this story. Somebody will kind of sidle up, sidle back, sidle back up, tap me, and they'll say, excuse me, sir, was your son in Hoosiers? So <laughs> what does that do to your ego, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I usually roll with it and say, yeah, that was my boy. But uh, <laughs> that's what age does to you. Yeah, no kidding. So tell me, so you talked about seeing an article in the newspaper for Hoosiers. So talk about how you came to get cast in Hoosiers. How did you find out about the opportunity? Obviously the newspaper and kind of what was that auditioning process like? Just just take us through that a little bit. Yeah, the short of it is I had just graduated college uh, down there in Kansas uh, in, in May, came back home, uh, was getting ready to sign with a company called Jostens, who I've been with all these years. I'm still with Jostens, class rings, announcements, caps and gowns diplomas, uh, Johnson's big company, and really have enjoyed my time with them. So anyway, here it is about, oh, I'd say June, somewhere in that range. And there were articles in the paper saying they were looking for 18 to 20 year olds. And I really felt like I was too old. You know, I, I was 23. I just graduated college. But at that time, I looked young for my age. It's going the other way now. But uh, I had a lot of friends say, hey, you know, you look young for your age. You ought to give that a shot. So one thing led to another kind of a cattle call, several tryout sessions. Um, and I've always made the statement all these years later that most sports movies, they look for actors and hope that they can play basketball or football, whatever the sport the movie's about. This movie, the writer and director took a different approach. They said, we want basketball players and hope they can act. You know, we'll teach them how to act or maybe not give them too many lines. And so one thing led to another. I kept getting called back for callbacks and about the end of August, uh, they made the selection, and I was picked as Buddy. And as you're kind of going through this process, you mentioned kind of this, they're narrowing it down, right? And we're going to talk more about the the, the filmmakers uh, wanting Indiana basketball players. You know, they wanted right. local bred basketball players, and we'll deal with the acting later. What, I mean, were you like, did you start at a local gym, and then you go to another local gym? In terms of the casting, I was like, what was that process like? And then all of a sudden, you know, the final acting call, you're at Hinkle Fieldhouse, or kind of what was that process like? Yeah, you pretty much were right on, on the money there. We we went to the uh, Indiana University, Purdue University campus, IEPY there in Indy. That was kind of a central point. Uh, I did hear later that they went to three different cities, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Indianapolis, looking for players. I also heard that they basically went through about 8,000 auditions. So just to be chosen as a member of the team, I felt like it was a real honor. But And to be frank with you, I mean, I think a lot of it was – a lot of the folks that were trying out for that weren't necessarily basketball players. They might have been thespians. They were, you know, actors or trying to, you know, um, improve their craft, what have you. And so that weeded out a lot of the participants. You know, they really did want basketball players first. Not that I was that good. I mean, I was a, I was a above average, you know, small college player. I wasn't any, you know, any Division One stud. But that was part of it too. They they didn't want those. Uh, that was kind of the roles that they were looking for for this Milan team. Very fundamentally sound, um, you know, good basketball players, but not great, not too good, because that's kind of the was the makeup of the Milan team. 
which of course the movie is based on. But you said it, went to different gyms, tryouts, readings, a lot of basketball drills. They did want to see your basketball skills. That was a big part of it. And then they pared it down to about 25 guys. And then from there, they kind of made the final cut. It's kind of like trying out for the basketball team, trying to make the team, you know, very similar. mentioned uh, the Milan High team and this Hoosiers is of course inspired by that 1954 Indiana State title title team led by Bobby Plump um you're an Indiana born kid you know what did you know of the Milan yeah great question you know I graduated in 1981 so that was if I do the math that was 20 you know 27 years after Milan so it was a little bit before my time but when you grow up in Indiana playing basketball you find out about the Milan team I don't care what age you are because it's still the one-class system, obviously. Yes, and that and that's it. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that was be, that was before they had class basketball, and that changed in 1997. A lot of people will tell you that was a dark day in Indiana history. Depends on who you talk to. Bobby Plump is a real advocate for uh, trying to go back to that system. He felt like it was really unique, and I, my heart understands that. I, you know, I, I really do. I miss it too. It, it was so neat to be able to tell my teammates in Kansas. You know, they would say, you know, in a long time again, how that works. I mean, everybody against everybody. And I would say, yeah, that's how we do it. And, you know, that's kind of a a metaphor for life. I mean, life isn't always fair. And and I just thought it was kind of a cool thing. And and every year, almost every year, it seems like there would be one small school that would slip into that final four. And of course, the other three teams wouldn't root for them, but the rest of the state would. So it's kind of a David versus Goliath underdog theme. And uh I miss those days of the non uh, of the non class basketball, but we have we have since crossed over uh, in '97 and haven't looked back. Yeah, so you know you're this you're the guy, 23 years old, about to get into the real world, so to speak, and, and you're plucked from Central Indiana to be in a film. You know you're not imported from Hollywood and set down at the Hoosier Gym in Knightstown, Indiana. You're you're starring alongside bona fide actors like Gene Hackman and Dennis Hopper and Barbara Hersey. So those first day of filmings, you know, you're, you're not from the thespian right. world. You're from, yeah, I'm from central Indiana basketball world. That's my world. And so when you're plopped down and filming, what are those first days like for you? How, how eye-opening is that experience for you? Yeah, I've had time to reflect on that all these years later. And the thing I remember about it, I've always made this statement. I stick by it. Because I had played college basketball, you know, we had media days where the media would come out. Uh, we would practice in front of them. They would stop practice. They'd ask us questions individually. Uh, you know, cameras were there, local, you know, local cameras type things, st- uh, stations. And I liken my experience very much to that. Um, you know, because I had gone through that, I don't think I was as, as intimidated as, as one might be. It was sort of like, to me, a big press conference from college. Now, I've, I've also said that if the movie would have been about bowling or about ping pong. I might have been in trouble. You know, I'd been out of my element. But because I had played basketball and been through those media days, that's kind of what it seemed like to me. And so the intimidation factor, and, and I will tell you, Gene, Dennis, Barbara, all of the, Sheb Woolley, all the big names were very nice to us. You know, what you find out very quickly with actors on that level, um, people tend to kind of put them on pedestals and think they're so much different than us. But they're really not. They're just like us. It's just they're very good at what they do. And uh, off camera, they're just 
you know, just like you and me and, and, and anybody on the street and then on camera, they're just they're very, very good at uh, turning that level up a little bit. And Gene Hackman used to tell us that it's really being yourself with a little bit more energy. And um, I use that throughout filming. Yeah. And, you know, screenwriter Angelo Pizzo has said, and, and you referenced us earlier, that he intentionally wrote the script with basketball players in mind, not actors. And he specifically wrote parts that didn't require kind of heavy acting chops. Uh, in, in fact, that Hickory team only includes one actor, and that's David um, uh, uh, Niedorf. Um, the rest of you guys are, you know, local Indiana guys, you know, who go through those casting calls just like you do. And so, but you specifically, your character has more than a few lines in the film, including that famous line I referenced in the opening. It was the Dentine retort, so which I think pretty pretty famous line. How did you get so lucky that you got to say a few more lines than anyone else? Yeah, bless your heart. I've had people say that to me, but you know, it's interesting. If I look at the whole movie uh, from start to finish, it's really interesting. And in, in Angelo, who wrote the film, Angelo Pizzo, in his brilliance, I think he did a pretty good job of kind of spreading the wealth, if you will. We all kind of have our own personalities, our own little idiosyncrasies. You know, my character, uh, my college teammates laugh at this one, but in the script, Buddy was to be the captain of the team and the defensive expert, the best defensive player. And most of my teammates that I played with over the years would tell you I pretty much like to play one end of the court, and that was the <laughs> offensive end. So I was not known for my defense. So it was kind of fun to get to be out of your element, uh, if you will. And then the other part of my character, if you remember in the film, I mouth off and get kicked off early on. Well, those of you who don't know, my name is Norman Dale. I coached college ball for 10 years, but it's been 12 years since I've blown this. So I'm going to be learning from you just like you learned from me. I'm going to be setting up practice a little bit differently than you used to, but as you'll find out, everything has its reasons. Basketball is a voluntary activity. It's not a requirement. Any of you feel you don't want to be on a team, feel free to leave right now. Did you hear what I said? Me? Yes, you. Sure, I'm just curious to know when we start. We start when I say so. Okay, would you kind of let me know? Because I'm kind of getting All tired right, of standing. Out of here. Right now. You're kicking me out? Yes. Don't come back until you learn to keep your mouth shut and listen. And again, teammates say, man, we never saw you talk like that to the coach. And so I would remind them that that was acting. That I got to, yeah, I got to act a little bit, be someone I wasn't. But it was a lot of fun to kind of step out of your comfort zone, um, kind of pretend, if you will, be be you know be someone that you're not, but yet tell a story. And of course, this story is based on a true story. That event actually did happen in 1954, where a small school beat a large school. And most people that don't know the history of Indiana basketball think, well, that's unrealistic. That would never happen. But in fact, it did. But uh, yeah, you make a great point. It you know it you're you're out of your element uh, to some degree, but you're in it because of your basketball background. And did the Milan High guys come to the shooting at any point? Did you get to interact with any of them? Yeah, they were great guys. You know the old saying, Danny, that nice guys finish last. It does not apply to the Milan group. They are the nicest group of guys you would ever want to meet. They're so humble about what they accomplished all these years later, and they they come to events. Even they're in their 80s now, and they do a better job, frankly, I'll call out my Hickory teammates here probably, of coming to events and meet and greets better than us Hickory players. But we get paired up with them quite a bit because of their history, because of our history. Uh, we come to a lot of the same events, and we've all become friends, and they're the nicest guys in the world. Bobby Plump is is a storyteller, and, and you know, you talk about something happening to someone that kind of uh, molded and shaped what he was to become later. He 
he see he sit down with you and you wouldn't be out of there 20 minutes you know he'll tell you old stories great guy but we see those guys a lot and i always remind them that we got to do what we did because of them you know yeah yeah and so let's talk about some of your best memories from filming you know whether it be off-screen interactions or a particular scene or maybe there's an outtake you know when you reflect back on this experience again 35 years ago but what are some of your best memories from filming yeah that's a great question i I always tend to gravitate towards it's the things that happened off camera. Very much like I told my son, you know, he ran cross country in college. And I told him that all the years I played basketball in college, my I remember a lot of things on the court, conference championships we won or, you know, big games that I had. But the things that come to mind to me first are the stuff off the court, the relationships, the hijinks, uh, you know, the things that you did. We, we had two players my sophomore year that we got brand new uniforms. Uh, and they threw them in the dryer by mistake and put it on high and ruined them. And, and I, it's the maddest I ever saw my college coach, bar, bar anything that we did on the court. It's the maddest I ever saw. And we still laugh about that all these years later. Same thing with Hoosiers. It, it was all the stuff off the court. We would do practical jokes. You know, we would have uh, one, one day we were shooting or uh, having a game of horse and we knocked over a pretty, pretty expensive camera. And, and, you know, they weren't very happy with us, but, you know, what could they do at that point? They couldn't fire us. So we had to go basically go sit in the corner and be quiet for a while. You know, you put a bunch of guys together from 18 to 23, there's still going to be some hijinks that are happening. And, uh, uh, you know, another little story I'll share with you. And I was in the middle of this one. Um, I told the guys, I said, go tell Mr. Hackman to ask me how my mom's dancing lessons are coming. And, of course, you know, he didn't have any idea what they were up to so he did and and i is probably the best acting i did the whole time i kept a straight face and i said mr hackman i really don't think that's very funny my mother lost her legs in a combine accident and i walked away you know and and i, and I know we shouldn't laugh about that but at the time the look on gene's face and of course those guys so that's the kind of stuff we did that's the kind of stuff we talk about all these years later i don't i don't think gene was too happy with us for about 10 minutes after that but we got him pretty good on that but that's the kind of stuff kind of off camera that I probably will remember the most in the relationships. You know, we're brothers all these years later. We see each other all the time. It's like your old college teammate or roommate, Danny. You haven't seen him for two years, but you see him and you pick up right where you left off. Absolutely. Absolutely. So from one thing I understand, too, there were some games on set, too, because there, there was you guys were all basketball players, you know. Um, so, you know, you have Steve Holler. He played Raid. He was playing D3 hoops at the time, I think, at DePaul University. I've heard Wayne Schneck, who played Ollie, was a pretty good hooper. Some people assume that the best player of your group was actually Morris, who played Jimmy Chibwood. Uh, the late Ken Poole, who played Merle Webb, he had a rather decorated high school career in Indiana. So settle it for us during those like pickup games and that you guys played. Who was the best hooper on set there? Yeah, I always get asked this question, and it always makes me uncomfortable because here what I, here's what I would say. Here's how I would answer that. Uh, there were a couple of us that that played basketball in college. That was Steve Holler and myself. There was a couple of us that had good high school careers, but then did not go on to play college. And there was, I'll, I'll pick on Morris here, uh, who played Jimmy Chitwood. A lot of people can't believe this, but he got cut from his high school team. Yeah. Didn't even play high school basketball. Now, I would go on to say that Morris is a great basketball player. He's one of those guys. I played with him in a tournament about a month ago. The guy can still play, can still shoot. And a lot of those guys, that, for whatever reason, didn't make a high school team. They get a chip on their shoulder, and they kind of get mad about it. And, and I've seen guys like this, and they 
they end up getting to be pretty good ball players. And you look at them and say, where'd you play college ball? And they say, well, I didn't. I didn't play high school. You, and you think, how in the world can that happen? But they, they just get better. They hone their skills and they, they grow. You know, there's a lot of things that can happen. And then on the other side of the coin, uh, Ollie, I still call him Ollie, Wade Skank, who played Ollie, uh, he, if you watch in the film, he's he's horrible. And he can't make a layup, can't make, you know, all that. He's actually a pretty good little ball player. He, he played at L&M High School, has some skills. And so the way I answer that question from one to eight, all eight of us, there's not a great deal of difference. We all had our strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, a couple of us, like I said, went on to play at college. Um, some of us didn't play high school ball. It's just all over the board, but you could, there wasn't any one player that dominated any other player. And so we had good spirited games offset, you know, three on three, uh, you know, four on four, uh, you know, play horse. So that's how I always answer that question. Yeah. Interesting. You, know, you mentioned Ollie, and I didn't know Wade went to L&M, which has a pretty strong reputation in Indiana hoops, especially yeah. in the 80s. And uh, Ollie's a unique one because I read an interview with him where he said he actually had to – he's a kid like so many of you Indiana guys who grows up, you know the fundamentals. And he said he had to like – to look bad on screen was actually hard for him. You know, that's actually that's actually very true. Um, it, it's all, it, it, Ball players will understand this when I say this it's almost harder to play down than to play up. And, and, and that's true. He, I give him a lot of credit. That shows you how good he was to actually play it down because he really was a good ball player. Another little specific example, a personal one in, in the final game scene at Hinkle, there is a scene where I have to take a shot out of the corner. I have to miss it long. So it's a long rebound. It goes on the other side their big guy gets a rebound. I go behind him, steal it, throw it to Jimmy, catches it in the air, and lays it in. That was a staged play. One of one of very few. Most of them, they rolled the ball out and said, go at it. We'll, we're going to keep some of this, some we won't. But that was actually a set play. The point of telling you that story, I had to miss that shot. Okay? And I had to miss it long. So the first time we shot it, it went in. I, I made it. And they had to yell, cut. How many times do you make a basket? And that's a bad thing, you know? <laughs> So they yelled cut on that. And then the second take, I got it. I got it in the second take. And if you go out and shoot right now, you know what I'm talking about. It, it's one thing to try to miss a shot. It's a whole nother thing to try to miss it a certain way. And so those are little things we had to kind of, you know, work on in, in some of those set scenes. But I always tell that story because, you know, because we had all played basketball, I was able to do that in the second take. You know, if you had a guy who maybe didn't play at all, you might be there all day trying to get, uh, get a miss a certain way, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, by that time, you've taken 100,000 shots in your life. And every That's one right. of those 100,000 shots, I'm trying to make it. And now you're being asked to miss it. Um, so, you know, Coach Normandale is based a bit on I, on Indiana coach uh, Bobby Knight. And at least that's what, um, you know, the, the filmmakers kind of envisioned a little bit was kind of having this kind of hard-nosed coach. And there's this, as you guys are filming in 86, Coach Knight is, of course, at the height of his powers. And as you're filming, uh, there's this story out there that in one scene, Coach Dale gets ejected, but then Gene Hackman returns to the court and throws a chair across the court. Is that true or not? Here, here's here's the the uh, urban legend story on that. I, I I remember I kind of remember that happening. It never made it to print. They did it kind of as a joke because mm -hmm. the timing was there. That was in the middle, you know, Correct. the peak of, peak of nights. Uh, time period. And if I remember right, if I do my history, 
I think that event happened in February of 85. And it's Steve Reed that you can win some money on this trivia question. Steve Reed was the guy on the free throw line for Purdue <laughs> when that happened. And, and the chair goes across. So the reason I tell you that timeline, we filmed then the fall of 85. So that event had happened. And so Gene would have been very cognizant. And my guess is somebody goaded him to say, hey, pull right. a knight and throw a chair. And I think, Danny, I think he did on one of the outtakes. It it may be on film somewhere. But, uh, yeah, that's hilarious that, that you would bring that up because you talk about life imitating, you know, art. Uh, it had happened in February and Gene recreated it in, in uh, October. Yeah. My <laughs> understanding of it is just as you describe it, which is, you know, it was kind of done in jest. It was not yeah. part of the script. That's correct. So, one of the questions um, I have to imagine you get asked the most, you specifically, is that you get kicked, Coach Dale kicks you out of practice, your character out of practice there uh, early on, and then all of a sudden mid-film, you're you're back there, you're back on the team. We don't get to see you coming back, but I understand that's, so tell us a little bit about the story there, because it, it does involve some deleted scenes and stuff, so how do you, how does Buddy get back on the team, and what's the backstory there? This is the most ask-about scene and whatever happened to Buddy. First of all, is thrown off the team, then all of a sudden, magically appears. What are you doing here, Buddy? I thought I told you not to come around. Not here to see you. How was the game? I don't know. I've been shooting baskets for Hickory since the first grade. I was hoping that... If it's all right with Cletus, it's fine with me. Just remember, your second chance is the last chance you're allowed. Yeah, I'll tell you the whole story on that. So there is a scene, you're correct, where I uh, kind of have, you know, to me, the movie is certainly about basketball, but I always tell folks it's about second chances. You see the coach getting a second chance. You see the town drunk getting a second chance. You see players getting second chances. And so my second chance, you never see in the final cut. However, you can get a DVD. It's out there. It's the un has like 13 deleted scenes and has the scene in which I get back on the team. And so that's the scene that was taken out. I basically, I walk, I drive up in a 52 black Chevy. I get out, I walk into a barn where Gene Coach Dale is sitting on a bale of hay and I have a conversation about him with getting a second chance. He waves me off and says, second chance is the last one you get. I get back in the car, I drive off. Okay. That would have channeled that gap. The people at Orion Pictures at the time felt like I looked enough like Jimmy at that juncture in the movie that audiences would be confused as to whether it was Buddy or Jimmy coming in, getting back on the team. And so they cut it. And the director and writer to this day will tell you it was the last scene that was cut and they fought for it because they knew that audiences would be confused. And in fact, they were. That was one of the biggest questions from the media was how does Buddy get back on the team? He's the most vocal one. And then Wit, he takes with him, that shows how Wit comes back. His dad brings him back before practice is over. And then a couple scenes later, Buddy is magically back on the team as the captain. So that is what happened. They cut really an important scene that would have channeled that gap. And, uh, hard, you know, hardcore Hoosiers fans, they can get that DVD and fill in that gap because my scene is in there. And it was a really fun scene to do, too. It was, gotcha. I enjoyed it. And you mentioned that scene gets you a one-on-one -on -one with Gene Hackman. Um, obviously, Dennis Hopper's in the film as well. You know, two pretty prominent actors. I'm curious if you have a particularly memorable experience with one of those actors that you can kind of recount. That's a hell of a team you had there. 
You knew that team? I know everything there is to know about the greatest game ever invented. Did you know about it? No, don't matter. Man's got to do what he's got to do. You're playing Cedar Knob tomorrow. Ain't nobody knows him better than me. I've been watching how you've been breaking the Colts. But my friend, you cannot play them all the way man on man. They got no head toppers. Cedar Knob, a bunch of mites. Run you off the boards. You got to squeeze them back in the paint. Make them chuck it from the cheap seats. Watch that purgatory they call a gym. No drive, 12 foot in. That'll do. <laughs> well, let me tell you a gene story. And, and, and this, is very, this was very impressive to me at the time. And it is all these years later. You know, here's a guy that had been Popeye Doyle and French Connection, Lex Luthor. You know, he'd done all these movies, Bonnie and Clyde with Warren Beatty. I mean, Gene was an A-list guy, okay, going into Hoosiers. Everybody knew who Gene Hackman was. So he could have been coming into this thing, a real prima donna, and said, get out of my way, give me my lines, show me my mark, and get out of my way. I can handle this. He did not do that. He came in and said, I want to go to some high school practices. I want to see how coaches move, how they talk, what their verbiage is, what their body language is. And I was really impressed by that. So that's what we did. The IHSA, which is the governing body of Indiana High School Basketball, set up a couple practices where Gene went, we went with him, and he sat there and soaked it in. And all these years later, that's one of my favorite Gene Hackman stories, because instead of being that prima donna, that's probably why he's such a great actor. He realized, hey, I'd never, all the things I've done in life, in my acting career, I've never played a high school basketball coach. I need to, I need to learn. I need to, you know, uh, I can, I can get better. I can learn. I can soak in information. That's what he did. So I love that story about Gene. Dennis, just like one of the guys, uh, we would play cards with him offset. He told us a lot of James Dean stories. You know, he was in Rebel Without a Cause and Giant with James Dean. So it was like getting to walk and talk with James Dean, who's an Indiana guy. Yeah. So that meant a lot to us as players. Uh, Barbara Hershey was a little bit, she was very nice to me. I had no problems with her, but the, the scuttlebutt on her a little bit was that she was unhappy with how she was portrayed in the film. But now part of that is again, they cut a lot of things out of the film for the sake of time. And I've seen some of those scenes that she was in and she was great in those scenes. So I think that was her, you know, her, her concern. She, she was always nice to me. I never had a problem with her. And then Sheb Woolley, uh, you'll win some money on this one, Danny. It's a great trivia question. But Sheb Woolley, who played Cletus, had a number one hit. Of course, he was an actor. He was in High Noon with Gary Cooper. He'd been in a lot of films. But he also was a singer and had a number one hit in 1957. Do you know what, what it is? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Flying Purple People Eaters. That's a song. It's called Flying Purple People Eaters. You'll have to Google it after we're done here today. <laughs> that was a number one hit in 1957 by Sheb Woolley. So I always love to tell that story. He would sing it for us on set. So, <laughs> so that's kind of just a couple bits and pieces uh, of each of the actors. They were all nice folks. I really enjoyed getting to work with them. And, and that Hackman piece is pretty interesting. I, I should ask as well, too, you know, when you went and filmed these scenes where the, the Huskers, the Hickory Huskers are playing other teams, are those all Indiana those are all Indiana actors too, right? Indiana ball players as well. Yeah, pretty much. They were pretty much the the players that weren't picked as the Hickory players. So all of those tryouts that we did, 
uh, they, you know, what they would tell the guys if they weren't picked as a member of the Hickory team, give us your information. We may be getting in touch with you. And that's, in fact, what they did. So really, a lot of the players that tried out that didn't make the Hickory team ended up being cast as players on other teams. And a lot of the basketball, you you alluded to it there, there, there was a lot of just rolling the ball out and saying play. You know, we're going to film some of this. And so a lot of the footage that you watch, I can give you an example. In that final game against South Bend in the state championship game, they're trying to beat us and we're trying to beat them. Some of those things were staged plays, like the one I talked about earlier where I missed yeah. the shot. But a lot of it is literally you guys play, we're going to film it and keep a lot of it. They're trying to beat us and we're trying to beat them. So that was kind of fun for me. It was like, you know, you, we got to play basketball, you know, and just yeah. be, you know, and being, being filmed while we were doing it. So the sweat is real. <laughs> yeah, it pretty much is. We're going at it. Although it's funny you mentioned that one because I noticed that in some of the huddle scenes, we were coming into the huddle and we weren't really, you know, hands on knees, huffing and puffing and really sweaty because they were set up maybe before we had done any of the working out. So I went to David, the director, and said, hey, I don't want to be a prima donna, but you know, this is a little bit unrealistic. We should be tired and huffing and puffing. And he was really cool about it. He said, Brad, you're right. He said, what would you suggest? The director asked me what I'd suggest. I always tuck that away. I said, well, the guys are going to kill me, but I think we should run some sprints before these scenes and actually get tired. And I was right. The guys killed me for that one. <laughs> they weren't too happy with me, but they knew I was right. So a lot of the running we were doing uh, pre-filming and pre-setups were because we we're trying to get tired and sweaty. Yeah, so let's let's push ahead to the film's release. When was the first time you saw the film? You get to see all this magic kind of come together and then the finished package. So when's the first time you see the film? Yes, it was in late October 1986. We got to see a media showing uh, that was shown up in uh, an old theater in uh, northeast side of Indianapolis, and they had the media there and invited them. That was actually the first time I saw it before the premiere. That was the second time. The premiere was actually downtown on the circle. I had a red carpet thing. We had a dinner at the Columbia Club. It was really well done. They tried to make it Hollywoodish, you know, if you will, with the red carpet and all that. And uh, that was actually the second time I saw it. Um, and I have to confess to you, I probably enjoyed it a little bit more than I did the actual first time I saw it because Gene Hackman warned us the first time you see yourself on film, you will be a little self-conscious about what this, what you said, or could I have done this better? And he was right. You know, we went through that a little bit and he said, you'll get over that. That's normal. People know what they, they're doing as far as the editing and cutting and, you know, don't worry about that. So I've always tucked that away. He was right about that. But that was the first time I saw it, end of October and then the premiere like a week later. So when you see the premiere, since that's the one where you're able to kind of, I guess, maybe sit back and enjoy it a little bit more because you've done the, the, the self-critique, so to speak, right. with the first time you saw it, did what, what were your kind of emotions? Because it's interesting because I remember seeing the film in Chicago in 19, I would say early 87. And it was like we were in a live game, like the crowd, like the crowd is cheering, you know, in the theater for it. And so when you see the premiere and you get to kind of, I guess, sit back and enjoy it a little bit more. What was that? What was that like for you? That experience? Yeah, Danny, I love that question, because I've said all these years later, the best way to see Hoosiers, and not just Hoosiers, I, you could go down and remember the Titans. I can give you a lot of great sports movies. I mean, Brian's song. I mean, there's a lot of great chariots of fire. For me personally, the best way to see those kind of films are in a big theater with other people, the smell of popcorn. It's just a better interactive experience. And you hit the nail on the head. That time I enjoyed it, the crowd was involved. They laughed, they cheered, they cried. And it, there's something about being around other people 
at the in a big group seeing a film versus sitting in front of your television set maybe seeing it on dvd and so what's my point i i would love for a new generation a younger generation to see it in that way in a movie theater and you know there's been talk over the years of re-releasing it in the theater for a younger generation that would be cool if they were to ever do that because i think that's for the movie hoosiers anyway that's the best way to see it and uh it, it's just an interactive film and so for me that night that's why i think i enjoyed it so much because people around you are enjoying it you're seeing them laugh and cry and cheer at the times that you think that they should and that's that's fulfilling. You know, I always think like one of the great things like movie houses all across, and I don't mean your big megaplexes, but movie houses, you know, one screen theaters that we have, you know, peppering the U.S. landscape. Every March, they should just devote a day to just Hoosiers. Just I like that idea. And, I love that um, idea. That'd be great. So uh, let's talk. What's your favorite scene from the film? Yeah, one would think that it would be something that involved me. I, I, you know, sounds narcissistic to say it that way, but it's not. It's actually my favorite scene might be the hospital scene. I know. I was coached for a while. I won a big game for him. I was coaching the last two minutes. I took him right down to the wire. I run the picket fence on him, and we won. And my son, my son, he's on. Uh, how you doing, Dad? <laughs> Conquering here, I I heard the game right there on that that little Philco, and uh, I heard old, old Ollie dribble on his foot and then make that charity shot, and, and I I started bawling, and they br they bring the white coats in here and they they put a jacket on me. Um, I was feeling so good I didn't even mind too much. You doing good? Well, I feel real empty inside, and uh, I have some bad visions. Son, the other night. No, it don't matter, Dad. You're gonna get better. Couple of months when you get out of here, we're gonna get a house. Both of us. Oh, I wish I could be there. I'll be thinking of you. Son, keep there, bud. Anyway, I'll tell you one thing. No school as small as ever Everett and his father. There's just something about that scene because uh, Shooter can't be at the game and his son, you know, he's in the hospital drying out. His son and the relationship that those two have, you know, goes through embarrassment, goes through pride, goes through sadness. But that scene where he kind of sees his son off and says, I, you know, I wish I could be there with you. And then he walks out. That gets me. I don't know why. It's just, I just think it's an emotional scene. Um, that probably is my favorite. 
I would tell you my favorite line. I love the Dentine line. Don't get me wrong. And Gene and Gene told me that was his favorite line in the movie. So that's always meant a lot to me all these years later. But I have to tell you, Danny, probably my favorite single line, and to me it encapsulates the whole movie, is when Gene gets ready to walk out on the court and says, Welcome to Indiana basketball. Welcome to Indiana basketball. I just think that covers it all right there, you know. You know, you've it's funny, I always think of the line uh where uh Raid's character is being ushered off the court after a fight. He says, Got him pretty good, didn't I, coach? Yes, that's another there's so many good ones, it's hard to pick. Uh, but, but the dentine yeah. line personally, I've always been a fan of the dentine line. It just snuck in there so covertly. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. You know, he just looks you know, Coach Dale just looks down at you and say, It was dentine. Well, I and I've said dentine smells like, but no, and, and I've said all these years later, what it, it was fun to get to do that scene, but what makes it is his reaction. You know, like I can't believe the kid took me that serious. Uh, but again, the devotion to the coach, the, wanting to follow rules. I, I, I love doing that scene, and most people that know me, I'm a gum chewer. My wife gets after me all the time because I chew gum all the time, and, and so. Angelo, maybe in his perception of me as a character, worked that in. I don't know, but uh, that worked out perfectly for me because of the gum chewing that I do. You know, you've given us uh, here in this talk today so many just like cool little nuggets and, and, and pulled back that curtain a little bit. Again, I've seen the movie a hundred times. Uh, I've done a lot of research on it myself. Uh, what is something you think even the film's biggest fans might be surprised to learn or maybe a little nugget? Uh, that isn't as well known about the film? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll tell you one of my favorites is uh, that most people wouldn't know. So we're at Hinkle Fieldhouse. Uh, we're filming final scenes and there's a break in the action and there was a group called Entertainment Tonight. I think they may still be around. It was John Tesh and Mary Hart that mm -hmm. from the 80s. They were a twosome that did this you know, kind of talk show, entertainment talk show. So they were there on set and they were interviewing Gene Hackman. And us players were all peeking around the corner trying to get a look at the interview. They were in this little room. And I forget something that Gene Hackman said. He said, you know, he said in all the movies that he's done, that these were the best uh, extras that he'd ever worked with. He said, he said, only in Indiana can you get 8,000 people to come out and cheer for a fake basketball game. And I love that line. I, I love that line. It's true. It's funny. And I'll never forget that, you know, and not to pick on any other states. I've been to just about every other state in this country and I love them all. But I'm not sure they could have done some of the things that they did in other states as far as this movie was concerned. And uh, it is amazing if you think about that, that they were able to get people out for for something like this. Of course, with the magic of, of television two dimension, you only need to fill up half a gym, you know, to make it look full. And uh, but they had no trouble filling the gyms for all the filming. And so that one line from Gene, I think I think it impressed him. Uh, I think sincerely, authentically, he was impressed. And then I think it says a lot about the state of Indiana and our love for the game. Yeah. You know, in, in some markets, you can't even get 8000 to an NBA game. Right. So <laughs> these days uh, you mentioned how often do you can no notice his buddy today? Yeah, sure not very often. Film, so. Yeah, not very often. I mean, I'm follically challenged. I mean, uh, my hair uh, went south on me in my 30s. And so, you know, I still have the same mannerisms. I still work out and keep in shape. I still run. You know, I'm, I'm probably 10, 12 pounds over my college playing weight. So I'm still in decent shape. But I, I don't get recognized because people probably, unless they saw my mannerisms, unless they heard my voice, 
uh, invariably, I'll have someone that will come up and say, you know, are, are you buddy or, or was your son, you know, like I said, it was your son, buddy. <laughs> That's one that affects your ego a little bit, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's age is what it is, but not very often, you know, some of the other guys still look fairly similar, just maybe a little bit more pounds have been added on. Um, Morris Valenas, who played Jimmy, still looks kind of like Jimmy, I think. A little older. Steve Holler, I think, still looks the same. Um, Dr. Steve Holler, I believe, right? Dr. Steve Holler, that's right. Yeah, Steve and I are are buddies. Uh, He and I, because I'm in central Indiana and he's a little bit north of me, uh, he and I tend to kind of get things organized for the other guys when we're asked to do something, partly because we're centrally located. You know, we got David still out in California and we're all kind of spread out, but we all see each other periodically. It's usually increments of five years. They usually do five year celebrations. You know, this last year was the 35th year. So we had quite a few events going on there, but it's fun to see the guys, you know, and uh, of course we still get together and tell the same old stories, you know, uh, that, that we've been telling for years, but it's, it's a neat fraternity that we belong to. I'll tell you, and we we're very grateful for it. We're humbled by it. You know, and for you, this this film, again, struck a chord with the American populace, not just basketball fans. And it, but for you, it created this kind of unique and, and I imagine uh, perhaps unexpected public speaking opportunity. So tell us a bit about how that developed and what you like to share in the public programs you've given over the years. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's been a, an interesting ride. Uh, I think it started right after we finished filming. My father-in-law said, uh, you know, he was a member of the Qantas Club and wondered if I could talk to them about my experience. And I said, you know, I'd be glad to do that. I'm up in front of kids a lot with what I do for a living, so I don't mind, you know, speaking in front of people. Um, and so uh, that has led to, if I had to put a number on it, Danny, I'd say, north of 250 speaking engagements over the years. Uh, I speak a lot about my experience in the movie. I speak a lot about my faith. I'm a Christian man. I don't make any bones about that. So I speak to a lot of churches and youth groups um, uh, with my testimony, but also kind of the making of Hoosiers, the background and a lot of different groups, you know, whether it's a trade group, whether it's a company, whether it's a youth group. Um, I got to speak to the Billy Graham crusade, uh, uh, back in the late eighties to about 7,000 people. That was an experience, you know, so, uh, Lord's really given me some opportunities through it. No doubt about it. Uh, but I'm, I'm grateful for it. You know, I realize people like to hear about the movie and kind of the behind the scenes stuff. So I don't mind, uh, tell them about it. if They want to hear about it. Well, you know, you're here on the 199 podcast and you've been in the big time because you've been on the Dan Patrick show. I know you've been <laughs> honored at Indiana Pacers games, you and some of the other characters and, and, and actors from the film. You know, you think back to this, you were a 23-year-old guy who answered a call from a newspaper for, you know, hey, who wants to play in fake basketball games uh, and be in a movie? And as you look back on this 35-year run, what has been kind of the wildest part of this whole experience for you? Boy, that's a tough one. I, there's been so many. I, I, I think just the, the idea that all these years later, that it still resonates. You know, I, I think that if you would have asked us in 1986 what we thought Hoosiers would become. I don't think any of us would have guessed that it would become this movie that is talked about, is shown around March Madness, that ESPN tends to rank pretty highly every year. Uh, and, and here's my answer to it. I, I say, well, you know, why, why is that? I think you've got a writer and director who understood Indiana basketball in that time period, what it meant to the people of Indiana. 
I think you sprinkle on top of the fact that it's based on a true story. It's an event that actually happened. And then you also, it's certainly, like I said earlier about basketball, but it's that theme that is forever around us is that underdog makes good. You know, people tend to gravitate towards movies that make them feel good about themselves. And I think when you see somebody overachieve and, and, and maybe accomplish something, they, they probably, it was unlikely for them to do so. People tend to think, hey, I can do that. You know, it, it makes you feel good about yourself. So I think that's, if I had to pick one thing, it's just the fact that all these years later, it still resonates. People still enjoy it. And, you know, I'm going to be dead and gone, you know, years from now. And it might might still be interesting to people. You know, it's one of those things I think has stood the test of time. But the writer and director, David and Angelo, got it right. You know, they did. I think they, they got the time period right. You know, I have grown men come up to me in their 80s say, you know, we had those barbershop scenes. We had those caravans to the game. So, you know, when you hear that, these guys got it right. They figured it out. Yeah, you know, I think the film resonates here today and it's going to resonate for a long, long time. I got a little guy who's watched it many times himself. So, well, Brad, for myself and so many others who are a fan of Hoosiers and, and consider it among the best the best films ever made, not only one of the best basketball films ever made, thanks for joining us here on the 199 Podcast and, and giving us a peek behind that curtain through your experiences as Buddy. Thank you, Danny. It was my pleasure. And at any time, I'd be glad to talk to you. And uh... Uh, let me know if you need anything. And uh, like I said, to all the folks listening, thank you for taking the time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the 199 podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. Five stars only, like the basketball camp. We also have links to all of 199 social media so you never miss a release. Until next time, 